0: well i did not know that that time travel was happening in my own household so pretty exciting and what a great taste of what that first palm sunday was like as i said in our welcome this is going to be the most unique and hopefully memorable holy week in all of our lifetime Uh, we've never celebrated palm sunday under these circumstances and i'm 100 certain Unless there is a major intervention of God, and I'm not going to say He can't do that, He can do that. But if He doesn't do that, then the rest of the week, uh, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, will follow a similar format. We'll be online, Uh, not in the same room as previous years. And I am sure that uh, for many of us, we're sad. There's a sorrow, there's a grief. That we've had to make changes like this uh, in years past. Easter evokes life and springtime, large festive gatherings, picnics, land a park full and overflowing. And I, I don't, I don't want to in any way minimize that. There's, there's, there's a real loss to celebrating Easter a different way. And I don't want to minimize uh, the seriousness of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And at the same time, I, I have to emphasize that the message of the season, the message of resurrection, is not detoured by circumstances. No one or nothing has hijacked the Easter season. Our, sick, our circumstances give us a whole new vantage point for viewing the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me say that again. The circumstances that we find ourselves in give us a whole new vantage point for viewing the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I would suggest that the vantage point of this year's remembrance might even be better in its match to the original story than what we celebrate most years. We tend to view uh, this week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, through the lens of large crowds. A big parade on Palm Sunday, a full house on Easter morning. But if we go back to the gospel story... It's very befitting for families sheltering in place with fears of a very real possibility of major changes to their regular rhythm of life. I want us to visit some of those homes this morning. Homes that would be very similar to ours. I want us to begin in the house of Lazarus. John tells us in John 11, six days before Passover... Jesus came to Bethany, home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, we didn't stay long in Lazarus' house because it mentions Passover. So Passover is a reminder of going back in time. Time traveling is a theme this morning. To the homes of the Hebrew people in Egypt. Passover reminds us of the circumstances that these families lived under. Remember? Let me read you some of the story. A new king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. He said to the people, his people, those in charge, the Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. Come on, let's be smart and deal with them. Otherwise, they will grow large in number, and if a war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. With that type of thinking, the Hebrew people being a perceived threat to a new king of Egypt, who, by the way, was the world power of the day, that, that Pharaoh instituted these policies. We're going to force these people into labor. We're going to harass them in the workplace. We're going to increase our disgust and dread of these foreigners in our land, and we're ultimately going to enslave these people. These people are going to become our slaves. And when those measures didn't work to slow down the population increase of the Hebrews, a new policy was installed. The Pharaoh said to the midwives of the Hebrew people, When you're helping the Hebrew women give birth and you see a baby boy being born, kill him. Kill him, but if it's a girl, let her live. Can you imagine the fear that these households lived under? Can you imagine the circumstances that they lived under? The midwives could not follow the order of the Pharaoh. They could not murder babies that were being born. So they made up a story. They said that the Hebrew women were so quick in giving birth they they couldn't do anything about it. So the Pharaoh said, well, all right, second plan. Throw every baby boy that is born of a Hebrew woman into the Nile River so that they would drown, kill them. Oh my goodness. Under circumstances like this, what do you expect God to do? What is this God who protects the oppressed from the oppressor? What what is He to do? Well, first He oversees the rescue of a baby boy that was going to be thrown into the river. Next, He oversees the the development of that baby boy as a member of Pharaoh's household. Over 80 years, God works to prepare a leader to address the injustices of the Egyptian king toward the Hebrew people. And when an earthly power stubbornly entrenches itself against the king of heaven, what does that God of heaven do? He brings judgment upon that king, and upon those that follow his way. And that's that's what brings us to Passover. Passover is the final judgment that came against a stubborn king who refused to stop oppressing God's people. The Passover is the remembrance of a night, a very, very sad night. And again, families sheltered at home. Families who were asked to sacrifice a lamb and to spread the blood of a lamb around the doorposts of their home. Can you imagine doing that at your house? And can you imagine sitting at a meal with your family on a night where you knew that death was going to visit a nation? And that your hope was that your family would be spared. In their homes, the Hebrew people experienced Redemption from Egyptian oppression, slavery, and injustice by the supernatural intervention of God. This first Passover of Hebrew homes is the event that was remembered when we stepped into Lazarus's home. Centuries after what happened in Egypt, they're, they're still celebrating, they're still remembering this God who stood against oppression, injustice, evil. The home this time is not in Egypt, it's a home in Judea. It's a home that is not experiencing the Passover but celebrating the history of that Passover. It's in a home of a family who was not only celebrating the redemption of the Hebrew people in the past but also celebrating the redemption of Lazarus who was raised from the dead by Jesus just a few days before this. So in Lazarus' home we read, six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, hosted a dinner for Jesus. Martha served and Lazarus was among those who joined him at the table. Then Mary took an extraordinary amount, almost three quarters of a pound a very expensive perfume made of pure lard. She anointed Jesus' feet with it, then wiped His feet dry with her hair. The home was filled with the aroma of perfume. Judas, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray Him, complained. This perfume was worth a year's wages. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and he would take what was in it. And Jesus said to, her, said to, to Judas, leave her alone. The perfume was used in preparation for my burial. And this is how she has used it. You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. Many Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. The chief priests decided that they would kill Lazarus too. It was because of Lazarus that many of the Jews had deserted them and come to believe in Jesus. We're in a home. We're at a table. We're in homes that in some ways are sheltered from evil outside of the home, the threat of death. In a Christianity Today article entitled, Mary's Perfume Points us Toward the Cross, the the author writes this, in a scene of generous hospitality and intimate fellowship. See, that scene of hospitality An intimate fellowship is what leads into the public events of Palm Sunday and the rest of the week. It all starts in a home. And in that home, they're remembering what happened in homes centuries before. A scene of generous hospitality and intimate fellowship. Jesus, Mary, Martha, Lazarus gathered in the afterglow of Lazarus's return to life. Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. Martha ever the active servant is serving food. Mary offers her gesture of devotion to Jesus, lavishing a full pint of exquisite perfume over his feet and upending conventions of decorum by unfurling her hair to wipe his feet. Just a few days before, Jesus, Mary, Martha were confronted by the stench of Lazarus's decaying body. Now with Lazarus, they are basking in the aroma of luxurious perfume in a home, at a table. Following three years of ministry in which observers responded to Jesus in such oppositional and awkward ways, what a remarkable picture of true devotion. Mary's unashamed, humble, extravagant gesture in a home at a family table we some we see one of the most remarkable examples of true devotion found in the gospel records and again it's not in a public place it's not on a road it's not in the temple it's not during the parade it's in a home at a table much like ours and at that same table, there was a different spirit. It was Judas. The scene turns from devotion to something noticeably chilly. Judas's response sounds reasonable at first, a perfect blend of concern for both social justice and fiscal prudence. Wouldn't it be better to take a full year's wage to purchase the perfume and give it to the poor? But John quickly tells us that Judas' words do not ring true. Judas is a pilfering group treasurer who cared only for his own gain. The contrast could not be more pronounced. Mary is generous. Judas is greedy. Mary is humble. Judas is arrogant. Mary is selfless. Judas is self-centered. Judas stands aloof. Mary kneels in humble adoration. Together they serve as vivid contrasting illustrations of Jesus' own teaching. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want to suggest to you that where a person's heart is in a home is the same heart that goes along in the parade in the triumphal entry of Jesus. It's the same heart that would show up at the Lord's table on Thursday night. It's the same heart that would show up on Good Friday as Jesus goes through his trial and his crucifixion. It's the same heart that shows up at the resurrection. Our heart, it's the condition of our heart as we enter into this, this holy week. Where is our heart? And there's two places it could be. Under the circumstances that we find ourselves in our homes, at our tables, sheltered at home, the threat of a virus this time, which heart best represents our home in our present time of celebration and crisis? See, our home, our table, our heart could be generous, but it could also be greedy. We could be humble, or we could be arrogant. We could be selfless, or we could be self-centered. In our home, at our table, is our heart bowing in humble adoration like Mary? Or is it standing aloof in calculations and judgment of others like Judas? My friends, this is a time that our trust in Jesus will be tested. And the test is what I've just said. What's the true condition of our hearts? It's hard to hide that in our homes, at our tables, with our families. It's much easier to hide it in the parade, or the big Easter celebration. But at home, we are who we are. What's the condition of our heart? Holy Spirit, would you come? You're the only one that understands our heart. You're the only one that can reveal to us The true condition of our hearts as we enter this holy week. I know we all long to be like Mary, to be generous, to be humble, to be selfless, to bow in humble adoration. But is that where we really are? Because, oh Lord, I know, I know that we're tempted at this time to be greedy. People cleaning out the toilet paper at grocery stores is an act of greed. I need to take care of myself and forget about others. We're tempted to be arrogant, to dismiss this virus for what it is, to think, oh, it's not as bad as it really is. We're just being fooled. We're being lied to. The conspiracy theories are wacky wack. We're tempted to be self centered. How can those around me serve me rather than me serve them? Do I go into this week standing aloof of who Jesus is, our King, who's come to save? To give us life. Holy Spirit, reveal to us where our heart is. Not just in our community, but in your church. What is our heart? Create in us a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in us. Create in us a generous, humble, selfless, bowing and humble adoration heart. In Jesus' name. As we conclude, I want to be as clear as I can. We are living in a highly pressurized environment. The threat of this virus is real. We are sheltered at home for good reason. And there's absolutely nothing we can do to change the environment that we find ourselves in other than to ask the Lord Jesus to have mercy on all of us. I've been told... Through the years, the one prayer Jesus always answers is, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. And as we shelter in a place for the common good, and as we pray and ask for for God's mercy, my hope is that our faith will be refined. It would be like a diamond. Do you realize that diamonds begin as a piece of charcoal. Now, I didn't have any briquettes, but this is a suggestion. Go and get a briquette that you'd put on your, if you don't, if you have a gas grill, I'm sorry. You're just gonna have to find a briquette. Get a piece of charcoal and put it on your desk and let that remind you that that piece of charcoal exposed over time to extremely high temperature In high pressure, that piece of charcoal becomes a diamond. I believe that our faith under pressure is just like that. I believe that this is a time for our faith to be refined, become more like a diamond rather than a piece of charcoal. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace and faith, so that we may overflow with hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.